Hello, I'm back. I really am. It's making games this fun. And I've been away a while, but I haven't been lazy. I haven't, I promise. I'm working at the moment with us two games on a weekly basis, so that's why it's been a really long time since you've heard from me. For various reasons, it's we can't show you it right now, but you'll start to see some of it quite soon hopefully there you go that's a real game dev answer isn't it to when you might see more stuff from that but um in the meantime i've got a big old treat for you i managed to nail down the wonderful jessica curry and dan pinchbeck from the chinese room i went down there and we just had a brilliant chat we just opened fire on everything uh, we talked about them, we talked about games and games culture in general, we just let it flow for ages actually. One last thing that I really should mention is about an hour in there is discussion of racist abuse that the teens received through Facebook um, and there are a couple of quotes in there that are examples of the sort of racist language that they've received and that's not, so I've not bleeped or censored that. Um, because I felt, you know, it was in context to convey the point. So, but those kind of words are used at one point. Um, and there's also discussion of the kind of uh, sort of misogynistic abuse and the kind of threats that women get online um, as well. So just be aware that's all in there because I know that can be quite upsetting. Just thought it's important to let you know that before you you get to it so you're not sort of suddenly surprised by it. So just be aware that that's in there too. I was really happy with this one and it's a bit I'm getting each podcast I'm getting closer to what I actually want it to sound like. I want that kind of in-depth conversation about games about what what people care about in games and I want to focus on the personalities of the the people I'm interviewing and I think there's a lot of personality in this one and it's it's all about Jess and Dan and their their relationship with each other and you, you sort of hear them interacting last thing to say is thank you to jess and dan because this was probably my favorite podcast so far sorry to all my other lovely podcasters who were also brilliant um but it's just this hopefully from now on this is how these podcasts are going to sound a good sort of lively chat a natural chat that's the key and and you know hopefully a little bit entertaining and funny as well so i don't want it to be dry I don't want it to be too dry. I want it, I want anyone to get into it, even if you're not into games. Hopefully, I, I want there to be an appeal there where you just want to hear people and and hear about people's lives and their opinions on things. So, so here, you know, not too uh, ambitious or anything. There you go. So hopefully, you'll get some or all of those things out of this. And I'm going to shut up and let you listen to the latest episode of Making Games Is Fun. We're not going to get taken seriously as a medium, whilst at the same time, the people that are representing our medium are people that are saying, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that, no innovation, no diversity, no change, no anything else. Someone's put roller skates on a donkey! I would say that if I made a game it would never get finished and if Dan made one it would be shit. (laughs) (laughs) 
you've recently re-released uh, Dear Esther. Yep. Going back to it now, is there anything, sort of looking at it with fresh eyes, with a bit of distance, since Rapture, is there anything going back to it you sort of looked at and thought, oh, we could have done this differently, or is there anything that stands out now? Things that We made maybe... a real decision not to change it. Yeah. To kind of go, because I think if we'd have started down that route, then it's not like a it's not like a director's cut or a reissue it was it's a i think it's a it's kind of a historical work mm. it is what it is it was made when it was made it did what it did yeah. and it's bringing it was about bringing that i mean one it was about preserving that on pc so the, it started off with moving it to from source to unity because there was concern that if Source got discontinued or downgraded or whatever it was, then actually the game would just stop being playable. So it started off with a port to Unity to preserve it on PC. Mm, okay, yeah. And that then opened the opportunity up to put it on console. So it was always about kind of maintaining the game, really, wasn't it, I think, and then making it available to new audiences. And I think, I don't know, if we'd have gone right then, like, I feel very differently about it. Like, if I had the opportunity to read, but it's interesting, Frictional are putting Machine for Pigs out on console... And if it was RIP, I'd have ripped it apart and put it back together again because I think there's stuff in Pigs which needs fixing and which could be fixed mm. and would make it a much better game and would be worth doing because we weren't satisfied with it when it came out. I think there were things which we had done which we thought, actually, with hindsight, we wouldn't do that. We'd prefer the game didn't ship with those mm. decisions in it. Okay. I don't feel that way with Esther. No. I feel That's like cool. it is It is what it is. Hmm. and. It, I was dreading works. looking at yeah. it again and listening to really? it. I was, because it's so easy as a creator to be really embarrassed about past work, because you're always developing and changing and improving, yeah. hopefully with every project that you undertake. Yeah. So five years passed, and I was like, oh, God, and we <laughs> sat there, didn't we, in this room, mm. and we booted up, and I said to Dan, I feel sick at the core, because <laughs> it had been such a long gap yeah. between since I'd last played it and I haven't listened to the soundtrack for ages and I was really really pleasantly That's good. surprised and relieved I thought it had really stood up actually I thought Rob's That's visual cool. still looked amazing because you know obviously the tech moves mm. forward so quickly I was like is this going to look completely crap now and it hmm. still looks playing the cave still it just completely transported mm. me again mm. so in a way yeah I completely agree Pigs is something really different. There are so many things. Like I had a very low budget for the music for Pigs, and I'd love to re-record it, like I did with the Esther soundtrack with live instrumentation. I think would just transform it. And visually, there are some easy wins, but Esther, I think, just stands as a little nugget of loveliness. Yeah, because <laughs> I think cause it was the first kind of of that. I mean, I mean, it, retrospectively, obviously, at the time we weren't going. Oh, we're gonna, you know, we're creating a genre or anything like that. But I think what's become clear over the last few years is that it was this, you know, it has been proved itself to be a really influential game. Mm. And yeah. that has been consistently surprising how influential it's kind of proved to be. But I think mm. because of that, it kind of felt appropriate that it should stand as it was as well, but not going that this, what is being sort of reissued or what's come out this year is the game that kind of was the game that in 2012 had that impact. Yeah. Um, so we've just spent the last 10 minutes answering a very simple question. No, that's good. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> In short. No. no. Well, I think so we can edit that. And just I think that's it. Thanks very much. Yeah. <laughs> I'm out. Yeah. Sun's going down. <laughs> well, I think that's the difference between 
sort of graphical fidelity and art direction, isn't it? Really, yes. it's the point is you get lost in that world, and and whether you re- come back to that or not, you know, whatever time you do that, if if the art direction's there, that's absolutely that's what draws you and in. And there are games like Shadow of the Colossus where you mm. think it's even older, but it's still is beautiful and it still hangs together and you kind of you can see the edges of where it's older tech yeah. but those games that have that vision and it's the same with the, the, the sort of the audio and the music as well when it's not technologically driven but it's driven by a vision yeah. um, and you can also see those games which literally you know they sort of they come out and within weeks they feel dated because there's mm. no actual vision in it and yeah. it's like for me the difference you know, I've just been playing through Mankind Divided and Mankind Divided feels more dated than Human Revolution even though Human <laughs> Revolution is years old because Human Revolution has such a strong vision of the world in it yes. and Mankind Divided feels a bit generic and as a result you don't have that the yellows and the plastic and the sort of like yeah. gothic renaissance the fact that people walking around in roughs and things like that and it was so striking Human yeah. Revolution yeah. and it hasn't dated as a result it still looks amazing and sounds amazing and I think it is that thing if, if, if it is about a presenting a world and if, if, if that's where the focus is then it doesn't date as much no <laughs> in short no. no I gave him my wife look of stop talking which you can't see on the podcast and it burnt into his record you might hear it if I just amplify you might hear it just very gently this sort yes. of frequency <laughs> that's fine talking is good on the podcast <laughs> don't worry it's a perfect thing to do <laughs> Um, I um, went to went up to um, Glasgow and Edinburgh about three weeks ago, and they were doing. Well, no, they've they just missed something called the Inchcombe Project. Did you hear? Yes, about? Yeah. yeah, Mona. Yeah. That was really interesting. So that was totally. Did sort they of see biking. it? They went to it. Yeah, How yeah. Was it? They said heard... it was great. Yeah, oh, really? yeah. And they want to. I think they want to redo it, and maybe we should explain on the actual podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they kind of made a live action. Dear Esther, essentially, didn't they, on, on Inchcombe yeah, Island? Yeah, she was, um, um, it's Mona, she was a PhD yeah. um, candidate, and she spliced Dear Esther with her own text, mm. and like it was a kind of promenade performance on this island, where yeah. at points of it they were playing parts of the game, and then parts and the of it there was sort of, like, yeah, they had like bits a, of it where it was her script and live performance. It sounded amazing. Yeah, they had an app where you kind of, it's like a geolocation app. So when you pass through a certain area, it would play audio, like in the game, apparently. And, oh, uh, I'd love to go. All culminated yeah. at the Abbey where they were playing, it's like from the caves to the end, projected onto the wall. Uh, and all the orchestra, all the orchestra were kind of dotted around the island playing instruments. And then they all came together. Oh. In the Abbey at the end to play along with that sounded such a such a neat idea. It really, it sounded idea. fantastic. It um, and it made me think of um, uh, maybe think back think back or forwards back and forwards to Rapture, <laughs> um, and how you know sort of interactive theatre where you're not where the audience member is in the so say it's set in a hotel or whatever yeah. and, and you're not actually sat in a seat you are walking through the play, and depending on where you go sort of affects you know what you see which room you go in and that kind of thing and there's there's a little play going on in there there's actors in there or in a different room and and it sort of made me think that's kind of the vibe that rapture has for me as well so there's there's plays ready to happen and depending on where you go in the village you get a different sort of mini you know dialogue Absolutely. It's I think a really it was, nice analogy, actually. Yeah, I think yeah. it definitely was the kind of idea about Rapture that you are 
Yeah. Um, it's it's there for you to find rather than you being sort of pushed through it. And I think with the design, it was really, I think why it took Andrew so long to signpost the whole thing was finding that balance between making sure it was people could find it but not actually pushing people yeah. in any given direction that whenever you came out of any scene yeah. you felt like it was your choice where you went next and mm. the story was discovered by you rather than it being which I suppose is the biggest evolution from Esther mm. was that it wasn't a corridor that it was just about laying seeding a space with story and then providing just enough impetus yeah. for you to get in and out as as to take out of it what you wanted and we talked a lot about it, it wasn't even necessarily important that a player finished the game mm. like it was really interesting that sort of when people don't like it the people that don't like it they say things like it's too slow and it just wouldn't do it and it wouldn't finish for them and actually the people that really liked it didn't even necessarily require the game to finish they, it's, mm. it was, they really got that it's just a world to be in for as long as it remains interesting for you mm. um, and that's okay and it's not something where you have to go it is critical that we get you from A to B within this period of time mm. um, but it was much more about a wandering I guess I think other I mean I'm always banging on about this but other audiences from other mediums are more used to being asked to make an investment in the thing that they experience mm. and I think maybe a massive generalisation but many gamers are totally spoon fed all the time in terms yeah. of signposting and expectation and it's very juvenile in a lot of ways for me mm. where if you go to you know the theatre or if you read a book or um, even in some ways a concert there is an, I think people are more patient in other genres yeah. and I think it's really interesting the extremity of reaction that we get to the games that mm. we make mm people there is no you know middle, middle ground like. which I really like people either <laughs> yeah. love it or they absolutely hate it and feel very threatened by it mm. um, I think there's no I think there's not the range in games yet that there is another medium medium so you do have the Pulp Fiction book that goes straight into whatever and a spoon feeds you a plot and explains everything and you have the film that's that you know oh, great two seconds in and we're <laughs> someone's getting stabbed brilliant you know <laughs> or whatever yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then obviously you have films on the other end of the spectrum you've got your you know your four hour you know e epics it's like, yeah you or yeah. disc four Kurosawa now, this one scene <laughs> yeah <laughs> you've got your you know your Kurosawa kind of mm. epic so it's all about how everything's laid out and appreciating that and and how that feeds into things and you know you've got that you've got everything in, in other mediums but with games it's still not I mean, they're so much younger anyway as a, as a, as a thing compared to those. I think it's a market thing as well. I mean, one, I, mean I have, I mean, I have undying respect for people that work on AAA anyway that can even just get a project out the door, whatever quality <laughs> it is, just getting sure. it out the door <laughs> yeah. when you've got that kind of volume of people working on a project and the software is that complicated. I think it's such an achievement. And it's mm -hmm. even with games that don't land particularly well or aren't that good at the end of it, you still got to say, actually, it's a hell of an achievement just managing to ship it. Yeah. But I think one thing that I find really interesting about AAA stuff is that you can see so much of the time developers pushing within a very, very, very heavily structured framework to actually yeah. do this interesting stuff. Like one of my favorite games of recent years is is um, Wolfenstein, the um, the New Order where mm -hmm. ostensibly it's cybernetic Nazis and you've got like a shotgun in each hand with ricocheting bullets but you get about halfway through the game you suddenly go 
I really care about these people. Yeah. And actually, they were building up to a point where there's the level set in the camp, and I was like, this is dangerously thin ice here to do set a level in a concentration mm. camp. But there's they actually smuggled in a proper serious politics into that game mm-hmm. and proper serious emotional investment in the characters whilst having a main character called BJ Blazkowicz. <laughs> and, but they got it. They did it. They smuggled all this stuff in. Yeah. A massive fact, I think Bioware are brilliant that they put mm. in real, proper, serious, grown-up themes. Mm. And I think it's like the person, I think the, the analogy, which is really interesting, is um, Christopher Nolan films, where you can have the blockbuster, but it doesn't mean to say that because you're doing a blockbuster you can't introduce intelligent, intelligent themes. Yeah. And I think that's where I think AAA stuff is becoming really, really interesting because the developers are, you can feel them trying to make the medium grow up, yeah. even within the straitjacket of yeah. this is multi, multi million pound productions. Yeah. And it can't stray too far away from the formula. Yeah. And I find that really kind of inspiring in a way that you, you kind of go, it is, the weird thing is, is that I think kind of players would take it a lot more and want it developers want it and it's almost like it's just the the the, the system that it all exists within just relaxing a little Do bit and letting it happen it? i don't think players want it i think it. enough players want it well enough people play stuff like mass effect you yeah. know it's like i mean mass effect doesn't shy away mass effect has incredibly grown up attitudes towards stuff like sexuality politics um interrace interracial still within a very traditional and safe for those players framework it yeah. is, but I think to put a triple gay aim the, out there, the which allows you to have completely it? fluid, um, like say, interspecies as well as interracial, as well as yeah. intergendered um, sexual relationships with other NPCs and characters, that's a, quite a step to take for a triple mm. A thing. Yeah. Um, that shouldn't happen if. I think the problem is there's a very dominant player voice, which is dictated not by a dominant size of players, but by a very, very vocal group of players. And they yeah. call a lot of the political shots. Because mm-hmm. I think there's an also a very large body of players who probably are a lot more open-minded and stuff like that who just aren't making a hell of a lot of noise. Um, mm. And that's... It's about who gets to control the debate, I think, a lot of the time. That, that struggle... It's funny, that's exactly what I was going to go on to about this, this struggle. I was about to say, my uh, sort of... Oh, I've hung around some devs, so in my sort of pseudo... This is how it all works sort of knowledge that... But I'm glad you said the same thing. So I think, oh, I was right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all right. We could both be wrong. So good. So, yeah. I could just have reaffirmed your wrongness with my own particular that. brand of bollocks. Oh, Damn. <laughs> I wouldn't listen to trust a Shit. word I say. <laughs> but um, I, I, always, I always thought that was the case on um, Last of Us. Yes. The struggle. I always thought you can see that yeah. struggle because, I mean, I loved, loved that game. and um, But I always felt like... Um, you could see that they wanted to make it I always thought wouldn't it be great if there weren't any zombies in this at all mm. wouldn't it be great if it was just people because the bits where it's just that it starts like that and there's, and it's really quite chilling and quite you know there's, mm. there's the sort of a tutorial bit where it's like this is how you see folks through walls and the conversation these two bad guys have is really sort of just a nice human little uh, vignette where he, where he say something like oh my brother believes in the all the fireflies nonsense what an idiot uh, I hope he's alright though and then, then you have to sort of sc- scale the wall and, and choke this guy and it's really like Christ uh, yeah yeah but they are aban- but that gets abandoned 
quite quickly, and then all the bad guys are just called hunters, and they're like, burn that woman! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so uncomfortable, uh, that juxtaposition, and I stopped playing it, because I just found it so ridiculous. It, is, it was such a shame, because it could have been even better. But but you can see that struggle, where they want to put this in, and then, and then but there's this kind of, well, we can sort of do that, how about we do half that to make sure it sells? And, but if you, if you ever played the DLC of that, no, left behind. It is stunning, and and you can see that what's happened is they've gone. Okay, it's successful now, so now we can relax a bit on that side. It's really um, similar to with the um, Assassin's Creed DLC, the Liberation one, where mm. actually they kind of went, all right, we can push politically in the DLC, which in a place is crazy. That we just couldn't do on the main. Yeah. release which is a really interesting model of kind of going you know we've we've done our blockbuster and we can extend it now but actually with there's stuff we can get away with in the extension mm. because it's just on a different yeah that that left behind is because it because it puts ellie as the protagonist yeah mm. which i think they wanted to do mm. or maybe wanted to put a mother as a character instead instead of having still having to have it through the filter of dad yeah tired dad beardy grandpa <laughs> which Joel. i identify with heavily but <laughs> <laughs> Um, I went as Joel for Halloween at the. Oh, yeah, I was like, all I have to do is slight, make her slightly white, and off we go. Um, <laughs> get out our check shirt. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Rolling the mud, I did. You know, that's what basically what I did. I was like, I'm Joel. But I still think there's a problem with story delivered in cutscenes through games, and one of the things mm. that I'm most proud and I love about Dan and everybody's gone to the Rapture is that you delivered story. Not whilst the player still had control, I think that took a lot of confidence mm. and a lot of skill, and it was a complete mind fuck, really. Yeah, but my hard. as a non gamer, I was quite you know, I don't play games by choice, mm. I'm always really, really weirded out. Where I just I'm going, oh, What can I do now? And mm. Dan's going, No, no, it's a cutscene. I'm like, But yeah. it's so strange to have that. It's always talked about, inter- you know, that Chinese room games aren't interactive, but I think everybody's. Gone to the Rapture is the most interactive yes. story yeah. game that's probably been made. Well, that that ties in very nicely with there you go. That yeah. ties in <laughs> that ties in very nicely with one of the questions. Let's pull it all back. Um, now I can't take credit for this. This was um, a de- I was going to, but I'm, I feel it. guilty. <laughs> um, he feels shame. I feel shame. Exploited. <laughs> oh, um, one of the devs at I'm working with us two at the moment, us two games, and they have these little sort of breakout sessions where they just talk about game design just to try and get ideas flowing. Should probably say this does not indicate anything they may be doing in the future. They just do this every week, <laughs> so it's nothing to do with that. Um, but one of the devs was talking about um, games like Rapture, and and he said what you want to do is is well, maybe putting words in your mouth, but direct games more towards people who don't traditionally play games or traditional kind of games or people who might like things like interactive theatre and you can sort of replicate that with a, with, with a game like that but he was he was always he was saying um, you still have and this the sort of the medium of the first person mm. controls of right this the, the things that a gamer would be used to being able to walk and look around and that kind of thing um, but it still has to be told through that which is the language of doing that is quite a gamer a traditional gamer thing would would you say yeah but you I, think? I, I think we make games yeah so I think it is nice that we make games which are accessible to people who might not make games but I'm yeah. not my drive is not to 
use gaming technologies to widen an audience and hit a non core okay. We started off as modders. I'm yeah. Too modder. I make first person games. Yeah. And that's what I want to do. And if I'd wanted to make, without wanting to sound like it's going to sound more aggressive than I mean it's. <laughs> no, no, do it. If I fine. wanted to make immersive theatre, I'd make immersive theatre. I started off, yes. I, I did a degree in theatre. I started off in theatre. Yeah. I make games and I want to make games. Yeah. And for me, the controller is a really important focus for getting you for that connection with the world. I don't mm-hmm. think that it, there is, I think it's really, really interesting. Like, I mean, sort of like VR stuff, like like bullet train, which I absolutely loved, loved, loved bullet train. I love the double controllers. I like the naturalness and the movement, all this mm. kind of thing. Mm. But I don't think it's necessarily, it will improve the experience just by being able to naturalize the interface necessarily. Okay. I yeah. think that sometimes having a focal interface can direct your concentration and enable a kind of a relationship with the world. Yeah. That because it's all about it's all about the contract, right? Of of if you do this, then we supply this. Yeah. And you buy into that. And I do. Um, when I was an academic, I did quite a lot of stuff on ritual. And then um, a guy called Victor Turner who talked about the idea of sort of like reduced behaviour. That when you enter into a ritual, there is a codified reduced set of behaviour that you can do within that ritual, and the ritual will support. And in return, the ritual gives you something else. And if you behave outside that framework. The ritual breaks and you mm-hmm. don't get what you kind of promised, mm. which can be as simple as stuff like you have to believe that what you are doing has, there is a cause and effect relationship, even if it's not a, a kind of a rational physical one. Or you can only tread on the green squares. If you tread on the red square, then nothing happens. Mm. And so the controller actually enables that kind of relationship to happen of going, well, in a game like Rapture, there is a certain, a, a tiny amount of things you can do. And the game will support that tiny amount of things. If you have a completely natural interface, it's easier to fall into a thing of going, well, why can't I just do this? If I want to pull the curtains, I should be able to pull the curtains because I can just reach across and feels like I should be able <laughs> yeah. to pull them. Whereas if I've got a button to do that and that button simply doesn't work, it's easier to manage that. Yeah. So I don't... So was there a point that there is a, still a barrier to entry? or was it? That was what he was sort of... No, I can say it. it wasn't me, was it? <laughs> <laughs> and he was wrong! <laughs> Really interesting. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, he was—he was just exploring that idea. Is it a, you know, is it a? a because a, you a said I don't think non-gamers do play our games because they don't have the the technology technology to start. That's with. true. If you're yeah. a non-gamer, why would you have a PlayStation? That's I mean, that's true. the whole Microsoft have been trying to sort <laughs> yeah. this out for years. How do we put a, basically a Microsoft yes. console in yeah. the living room with people that mm-hmm. would never have a Microsoft console mm-hmm. in the living room? Because what's interesting to me is when we do talks like we've done non-gaming talks, like at the uh, British Film Institute, and loads of non-gamers came. And they're mm. like oh my God, I've never even heard of this and I would love to play this, but yeah. they don't know about it because it's so, yeah. it's a very, very true, stratified yeah. world still. Mm, yeah. you know, when I went on um, Radio Forms, interviewed on the Today programme, and they know nothing about games, yeah. and I came out of it saying to Dan, if it was any other artistic medium, they'd be so embarrassed not to know. Yes. And not to have done their research before. And if it was theatre or yes. literature yeah. or, or classical music, they'd be yeah. absolutely horrified yeah. at their kind of total ignorance about it. And it, mm. as someone who kind of sits more on that side, it's always it's been. I, I'm becoming increasingly quite defensive of games, mm-hmm. going actually it's not acceptable anymore in the 21st century to go. Oh, I just no. don't know anything about them as the first interview question. I think, well, do your research because yeah. you got me in. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's they, quite bizarre, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. In traditional mediums, you have whole documentaries, like hours, dedicated to obscure music, to obscure mm. poetry, to mm-hmm. obscure fiction, 
the, and then you get once a year you get a panorama on games and he goes oh these things are a bit dangerous and scary and you think for fuck's sake <laughs> you know actually you're talking about millions of people as opposed to tens of people mm. but I find there's a real problem with traditional media in that way but also what's really interesting is that games don't need it because they've got their own channels in terms of stuff like YouTube yes. and Twitch and all this sort of stuff yeah so it just feels like I, I just find it frustrating changes. it's like when we, you know we were nominated yeah. for 10 BAFTAs mm. and I was like oh my god the phone's going to start ringing from me, you know yeah. BBC News or whoever and yeah. no one cared because That's it was games hard. and if a British company had got 10 mm. film nominations can you imagine everyone got, nobody yeah. wanting to cover that yeah and that was really so. interesting to me actually but also I mean mm. just in general in terms of the BAFTAs that in terms of the number of people, if you totaled up the number of people who'd played all the games on the best game BAFTA shortlist, it would blow the television audience figures out of the water in mm. terms of stuff. So where is the coverage on that side as well of going, actually, just because it's games, the games BAFTAs are at least as important as the, the film and TV BAFTAs in terms of their cultural impact. Mm. But there's still this, if you're not a gamer, you're just not a gamer. Yeah. Mm. There is no blur. But then I think it's also not helped by the idea that a lot of the but you time... You don't say I'm a, I'm a theatre-er. <laughs> or I'm, I'm, a, I'm a reader. It's yeah, so read, weird. Yeah, exactly. I find that so fascinating. That's, that that's, that's how the... people self-identify, but no one else in the arts or that's the split, culture, isn't it? does it? That's yeah. where the split is, I think. Like in, in, Indicated in language like that, yeah. That you don't have, I'm a reader. Well, of course yeah, you I'm, are. I'm a musicer. And a lot of people who consider themselves really to be, strange. there's a, a significant number of people who consider themselves to be diehard gamers actually play a very, very, very small number of games. Yeah. And they play them obsessively, but they don't play very many of them. And I think there's a bit of an illusion that when we talk about and we say, well, look, there's, you know, there's millions and millions and millions of gamers out there. We kind of all know at the same time that, that a significant percentage of those people are playing FIFA or Call of Duty. Mm. And probably very little else. Yeah. Or they're playing sort of like a couple of mobile apps. Mm -hmm. But there's the sudden gap when you go down to titles like The Last of Us are going, these are big titles. You're going, the big, Last of Us is big, but it ain't FIFA big. It's not Call of Duty no, big. No, no. Um, and mm. it, we have to be really, really careful that we don't measure what an average successful game is against these huge kind of juggernaut franchises. And I mean, you know, FIFA's a fantastic game. Mm. But I think trying to sort of say, oh, we'd like to be big like FIFA is just, it's, it's nonsensical <laughs> yeah. because it's just so far ahead in terms of its, its impact and in terms of the amount of time that a FIFA player spends playing FIFA is probably far, far, far greater than the amount of time a Last of Us player would spend on The Last of Us. Yeah. So a lot of our metrics are quite sort of weird and fuzzy and a bit out of whack as well, I think, as an industry. Well, I think that's interesting. That the, I think there needs to be a more definite split in types of game, as we were saying, because the reason you don't say I'm a reader is because literature is so prevalent and so, you know, so fused into our culture that you don't, you know, you don't, you don't. Oh, I only read a small amount of action books, or and I'm a true reader. You know, there's no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That doesn't work the same. <laughs> and that's brilliant. Why. I'd love to do that. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I, yeah I'm, I'm, a, I'm a proper reader. Just Jack Reacher. For yeah. <laughs> Anyone who's not really hardcore reader, me, hardcore, yeah. they're not a proper reader. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's I that, quite like it? Jack Reacher as well. <laughs> yeah, it's that kind of. The fact is that those games are so different. Yeah. That. You, you can be a gamer and not like that that sort of type of game at all and never play them just like films or books but that that hasn't been really recognised yet or, or like not, not not accepted but you know made the norm which is why 
when you do get on things like BBC News about games, like, now a computer game has oh, done yeah. well. It's that voice when they I go know, like that. It's games! So Ooh, yeah. Ooh, it's that. Yeah. Someone's put roller skates on a donkey! Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's not. <laughs> it's that, isn't it? Well done. Yeah. Yeah, it's right. the quirky news item at the end. You think, yeah. yeah. And it's a multi-billion still... dollar or pound industry, you know, that's the thing. It's not taken seriously. But Quite actually, weird. the economic contribution is absolutely huge uh-huh. to the yeah. United Kingdom. Yeah. That even doesn't seem to be taken yeah. seriously. I wrote to, um, I've been campaigning for a game music prom now for probably a, a year, two years. Two years, hmm. And I got um, a rather interesting reply mm. from the commissioner of the proms, because I wrote to him and said, look, this is people would absolutely kill for this and he wrote back and said oh we get all these kind of you know niche and weird and wonderful and wacky ideas and I thought no this, this, this isn't is weird a yeah huge, there is a huge and passionate yeah. audience for this and respect the people that are not only respect the people that are making it the musicians but respect the audience mm. that mm. just because they love the music of a game it's the kind of assumption, isn't it, of just going, well, if it's game music, it must therefore not... It must be lowbrow, it must be have no cultural value on this kind of thing. You just think... But what was interesting to me, if I can finish my point, <laughs> is that this year they had a Strictly Come Dancing prom and an Ibiza prom, and I think, well, why are those things okay? But Did they? Yeah, which is fine. I really like fine. it. Because I'm what I'm really passionate about is getting people into concert halls that would never normally go mm. and opening that out. And we did the Dear Esther Live recently mm. at the Barbican. Mm. And a lot of people who came said to me, I've never been to a classical concert hall before. And I thought that was such an achievement yeah. to go, these places are not these rarefied temples that only the elite mm. can enter that actually it, they should be for everyone who wants to go yeah. without yeah. that barrier and that was really exciting for me and I kind of think there is an actual resistance to that because there are a lot of people who don't want those concert halls opened yeah. Yeah. to the masses because it should they want it the part of the appeal is the rarefied mm. nature of it mm. um, and I think the, the snobby around games and games music I can't remember who it was that said recently, you know, the next Prime Minister is probably going to be a gamer. And mm. the ne- all these people, or the next <laughs> commissioner of the proms, mm. or, you know, all these, or the, you know, head of Radio 4. Yeah. There isn't going to be this old guard because actually yes. it's so prevalent now. Most people do play games in some form. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully those barriers will break down with the next generation of people in yeah. creative power. started playing I think I first got my hands on a games console in like 78 or something like that and then I was a spectrum kid and it was but through the 80s games were there was no there was none of that kind of stuff it was just it was whatever you could stick on a cassette and stick it out there they were so crazy so for me the industry has always been about a kind of a really restless inventiveness pushing the boundaries Mm. not just a technological innovation but also cultural innovation and so with this weird kind of like conservative crunch back that we kind of have of going, you know, well, that's not a proper game. And you're thinking, well, you should have been around in the 80s because <laughs> that would have just, you'd have just like an idiot coming out with that kind of stuff back then. You know, stuff like Pajama-rama. This is, you know, this yeah. is, a, a, well, Jesset Willie, Jesset Willie, a game about a man who's so hungover 
that he tries to sneak past his housekeeper, but it's all based on Monty Python logic. I mean, they were mental. And I think it's really interesting with that sort of... There's enough snobbery about games coming from the outside in terms of them being taken seriously as a cultural form. The fact that we home-grow our own snobbery just seems madness to me, but I don't think that's representative of games or gaming culture. I think it is a a disproportionately powerful vocal group that are controlling that debate and that people run scared of because they can be incredibly aggressive and violent. And that means that they're controlling and it's we're not going to get taken seriously as a medium whilst at the same time the people that are representing our medium are people that are saying you can't do this you can't do that you can't do that no innovation no diversity no change no anything else Mm. well if you're outside games if you're outside games and you kind of go should we be taking these things seriously and you look at how gamer culture is being represented the chances are you go, yeah, I'm not sticking that stuff on Radio 4. That's just juvenile and, and violent and, and infantile. And I don't mean the game content. I mean the way it's talked about by an awful lot of, of by that sort of part of the community. Mm-hmm. But that does a huge disservice, not just to games, but also to the, the, the majority of people who play games who embrace the fact that games should be diverse and innovative and all this sort of thing and, and have a serious part to play in culture. So it's not just about... The outside stuff. It's also about us getting our house in order as a culture. Why is Grand Theft Auto the best-selling game or Call of Duty or World of Warcraft? They're not people who want diversity or difference or a creative challenge. No, but I'm not saying... metrics don't support your argument. But in the same way that actually if if you did a comparative metrics of, say, books... The vast books and number of book sales are sort of damaged life bestsellers, which are basically just tragedy porn. Or they're kind of really formulaic genre pieces, whether that's romantic fiction, whether that's action, that's whether a that's thriller. Argument, though, no, but I'm just saying just I'm not. So there are enough people within games who want to see things like proms or want to see kind of like stuff that you don't have to. Not everyone who is in a medium has to be that person, but there's. There is enough of a body of people within gaming culture who are into that sort of stuff, but they, their voice is rarely heard. That that's not part. Could of it them. be with something like games like Grand Theft Auto, in my view, that people who play, who who are true gamers, um, mm-hmm. will play Grand Theft Auto, but they'll also play anything and everything else as well. If you see what I mean. I do. I think. Would you like to hear my liberal man theory? Do it. That sounds good. <laughs> This sounds excellent. It's recently formulated and not very well thought out. <laughs> Even better. A dangerous combination. Version it's a bit point. like an Alan Partridge, it's, God is a gas. It's based on a case study. <laughs> I wish I'd thought about it a bit more now. But... Okay, I'm married to the wonderful Dan Pinchbeck, sat next to me here today. Hello. Hello, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I kicked you before. Um, Dan is a gentle man a devoted dad a really wonderful loving husband it sounds like you're dead thank you but he is all those things and a really kind person and yet I right I go downstairs you know I've been having a bath or something and I'll just see him killing (laughs) and shooting and this massive amount of aggression and he's loving it and he's pumped and my theory is that as men get further away from the kind of caveman, you know, Neanderthal model, 
you you still need a place to put that aggression and that testosterone mm. and it's like with our friend Dom who is a massive petrol head he's like such a gentle guy but he's into this hyper masculine world of cars yeah. yeah and is it this outlet and is that why the sales are so massive because men actually do feel quite emasculated in modern society deep down and just want this outlet that's my ill thought out theory thank you and good night <laughs> well there is like i mean there's this sort of anthropologists that sort of argue this people like rene girard back in the 70s that were talking about um scapegoats and this sort of theory that culture generates an amount of violence, just like friction. Just when you put enough people together, the way they rub against each other, it generates heat. It generates a kind of an aggression and a violence and a frustration. And the kind of old cultures used to kill the king and, you know, do this sort of stuff is a way of mm. finding a way that didn't, so the, so the society didn't just collapse into anarchy and violence. You'd find an outlet for that. And that... Um, like early kind of like tragedies and plays and things like that are about scapegoating it's about saying like all of the cultures naturally produced violence falls into this one figure and we create this kind of almost godlike figure where we can literally put all of that kind of like force into one place and maybe you know games serve a really important social function like that of actually it's somewhere it's a safe place for people's generated kind of aggression to sort of bleed out where actually it isn't actually hurting anyone. And that's a, you know, it's a potentially interesting counter-argument to the sort of desensitisation stuff. Mm. But I think even then there is still a, you know, it is difficult. I saw, uh, I was at a conference, an academic conference when I was still an academic, six, seven years ago. And there was, I think he was an Italian psychologist talking about this. And he said the difference that they were interested in, they were primarily looking at film, was the difference between violence and aggression and sadism and he said at that point, he said what was really interesting about games is that games might be more violent than most films, but they're less sadistic than most films, by and large. The mm. films which dwell on the entertainment value of causing someone pain, like Saw, mm. actually not many games. And they tend to be really picked out where they really invite you to dwell on the, the kick of hurting someone as mm. opposed to the kill or be killed reflex. Mm. which is a really really interesting idea and I think it probably is true that you kind of have actually the games like Manhunt and things like that which are properly sadistic mm. get a lot of attention because of that level of sadism but actually most games aren't sadistic even when they're very very violent and I think that's a really interesting idea you know we don't talk about that a lot but actually compared to a lot of films and a lot of TV I mean, God, most yeah, TV dramas these days are incredibly, in terms of violence yeah. against women, I mean, fuck, they give games a run for their money, and that they scene do. is completely okay. Every single police procedural thriller on, thriller on TV at the moment is based around sexual violence towards women mm. that is covered in quite graphic detail, and you're invited to get yeah. a kick out of that. Yeah. In a way that actually, that leaves games in the dust, because it's, it, it isn't a given that every game has to feature that I mean still too many do and it's not excusing it within the games that are there but, but then that's sometimes because they take their cue from films yeah you know well, for if, their stories if you were reading they, what are successful what should we replicate from, from other medium and you looked at your TV and you said well what should we be looking at or literature you know if you go into like you know I mean I've just been in an airport you go into an airport and you've got you know six foot of I was raped as a kid books that are flying off the shelves mm. and three inches of, of kind of literature I mean if you're going to read it and say what sells at the moment well it's not just within games that this stuff sells there's a wider societal thing going on and maybe that is to do with that I don't know 
No. <laughs> no. 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 Yes. No. I don't know. I think generally the point is that we get there are we have got yeah. lots of problems as a medium, and there are lots of yes. problems in gaming culture. But I don't know that it's disproportionate compared to compared to other things. It's just seen that way because of the attitude towards. Yeah. But that doesn't mean to say we shouldn't still be vigilant in trying to meet it head on. Hello, it's me. This section opens with us talking about games and children and what we are okay with letting our kids play. So you're going to hear Jess talking now and she's going to talk about her son and what she's been letting him play and what she's still not sure about him playing. He is getting to an age where it is really, really difficult to make those calls sometimes on what we let him play. Yeah. His friends have been playing 18s for probably four or five years. It's been a running joke with him, really, of saying, you've got game dev parents. You, you, like All the kids who've got game dev parents are always like, oh, parents won't let me play anything. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> the game developer. <laughs> oh, they get to play whatever they want. Yeah. No, son of a game dev, you know, it's not going to work. You're quite and strict with him. You're going to go through Rapture again. Oh, <laughs> Fortunately, he's FIFA obsessed, so it keeps it quite easy. Yeah, he's, not, he's not a massive shooter player, but... What did he want to play the other day that was an 18... Oh, that was difficult because it was Just Cause 3. Yeah. But Just Cause 2 is a 16, and he was fine with that. And actually, Just Cause 3 is really an interesting one because I don't think I don't think Just Cause 3 should be an 18 at all. I think it should be a 15, 16. I don't think there's mm. anything in it. And it's it's kind of interesting that... it's. I know it's really, really hard with Peggy and stuff like that, but there are 15s. Like, it was really interesting that he started playing Infamous, and you hated Infamous. And I was like, hey, Infamous is a 15. Oh, but you God, sort of said he yeah. found it really, really aggressive. And, and, mm. and He was really disturbed by He it really found well. it problematic. But Just Cause 3, even though it's an 18, actually it's far lighter than Infamous in terms of... I mean, anything which gives you a mission where there's a, a phone gaff tape to a cow's head, for me, win anyway. <laughs> kiss the cow! Out. Kiss the cow! I love that. It was great. And then the fact when you're driving up afterwards and you drive past the group of NPCs and one of them says, see, there's the man who kissed the cow. And I was just like, I love you. This is the best fucking bit of dialogue ever. Which was, was the Far Cry one where you just were reveling in killing all the endangered species? Oh, that is my, I think, in terms of just sheer, here's the line. Now we're just going to go straight past it. Utter tastelessness that I just, I had to go and fetch a hat and put it on my head so I could take it off to the, uh, the dialogue. It's a Far Cry 4 where you're given a mission to go and shoot a white rhino. Oh and, my and AJ goes, uh, he goes, uh, I don't know, I, I don't feel very comfortable about this. They're an endangered species. And the response from the NPC, and I think this is just, it, there's something so priceless about this line. They go, yeah, well, you can say what you want about Pargan. I mean, he's a brutal evil dictator. You know, his money is on heroin and human trafficking. But his endangered species breeding program is a marvel. We've got more <laughs> snow leopards and white rhinos than we know what to do with. <laughs> oh, my God. Don't encourage just... him. I mean, Don't encourage him by laughing. That's... That's absolutely wonderful. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Uh, so, yeah. I like so, the... Um, well, but... that's... But that, it, that's... Sorry to interrupt, but that's it for me. <laughs> He makes these extraordinary, beautiful treaties on what it is to be human and grief and loss, but you're such a dumb player. <laughs> and I can never, we've been talking about this for years, I can never bring these two people together. You'd never play the games you make. No, it's really bad, actually. I'm such a tourist. But you're passionate about making I mean, like, games. But then the games that you make don't have to be the same as the games you enjoy playing. And actually, weirdly... 
I'm not sure mm. I'd want to make a shooter because I think it could quite easily destroy my love of shooters. Yeah, I think that's true. When you're kind of going, okay, what we do for the next seven months, we're going to be balancing the pistol against the chainsaw and just pushing mm. an indigo backwards and forwards mm. across the line. Yeah. Um, like that could really end up with just going, oh, I don't know, I don't really like this stuff that, anymore. That sounds like a good, actually what you've, your setup there sounds like a good solution to being able to still enjoy games and make them at the same time without it ruining everything. Yeah. I was because again going back to working with us too, they will play something at lunchtime, and they're so cynical. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they enjoy it, but they'll sit there and go, "Oh, there's a bit of volumetric fog." They've you know, they've comped that in. That's, that's lazy. Yeah. And you'll just enjoy the story. <laughs> It's horrendous. We sort of we sit and we do oh, that. We sort of every couple of weeks. Is just, oh, it's awful. And I you just like shred it. it. Yeah. yeah. And then if it really because again, it comes down to that thing of going, "Hey, look, they shipped it. It's out the door." And yeah. we can sit here and we can go, "That that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong." That's wrong. But you kind of know. I think as a developer, you also kind of know when you're looking at those things. You're going, "Yeah, okay." But there was all this stuff happening that probably meant that that couldn't happen because of this, and that didn't yeah, happen. Yeah, no of one that. ever does and that, that, was done that. When we're playing, it. <laughs> no. Exactly. But then you try and reflect like... afterwards, and it's like it does make me like, sad. Well, everyone will be like, you know, oh, I can't believe someone criticised Rapture. This we're a tiny team, we're a tiny team. Then we'll play a game that attacks you. They'll be like, that's just rubbish. Why did they do that? And it's like, hang on. But then it is important to reflect on that afterwards Mm, and to go, no, I kind of genuinely (laughs) believe this. You kind of go, okay, there's always going to be compromises and things wrong. And you can... I think you shred it because you're trying to learn from it as well, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't try and justify the (laughs) No, I know what you're saying. But, you know, I do... It's where I have a, you know... we. I mean, one, we've been on the receiving end of it. Um, I think more for pigs than for the other games. But like in Pigs, there were a bunch of compromises. And some of those were driven by circumstance. And some of those were just things we got wrong. And you want to try and separate that stuff out. And when you're basically looking at a tsunami of shit coming at you at 400 miles an hour, which is how it can feel. I think how it feels for most people when they ship a game, regardless of how good that game is, you just get, it's just fine now. It's just an openly acceptable thing to, game comes out, right, (laughs) torrent of shit at the developers yeah. that's, that's what we do now that's, that's how we respond to stuff it's like with um, uh, No Man's Sky I've just been mm. appalled appalled by the way they've been treated this is the whole reason behind this series is that you, people have to realise you're not throwing this at DevBot 786 you know yeah, yeah. it's people not necessarily to say stop doing it but to say well just yeah, hold just on a minute think. just think about what, what, what you know why you're doing that and what you know but um and there's yeah, often, there's often all... lots of reasons why stuff doesn't happen like I say with pigs there was some stuff that we just shipped it and we thought we, when we were shipping it we went I don't like that yeah. it's going to have to go out the door but that's not right that's not good enough and some stuff that I think we'd have changed if we'd had the opportunity but whatever it is but there's always that sort of stuff as a developer because fundamentally you kind of you're working with a system and a technology with a finite amount of resources and particularly in the last sort of like six to eight months before it goes out the door you're cutting stuff mm. because you're going it's just not good enough and it's better for it not to be there than it to be there badly but that's a really hard conversation to have with the community sometimes of going we know you're disappointed you don't get this but you're only disappointed because you're not getting it working brilliantly but if you got it but it didn't work properly you'd probably be even more disappointed and actually sometimes it can just be you're in an impossible situation so I think it's really hard um, 
and I do think you know it is kind of like yeah with No Man's Sky I mean you kind of looked at it and went yeah I don't know I mean, it's very difficult because it's, it's wrapped up in a quite a complicated developer-publisher relationship and sometimes those things are, are really efficient they work really really well and sometimes those things fall apart particularly towards the end and the, what the developer needs and what the publisher needs start heading in different directions and if that's happening at the end of production that can leave you in an incredibly exposed vulnerable mm. position and it felt a little bit from the outside without knowing that something like that was what was going on with No Man's Sky and features were being added at exactly the point when actually you should be removing features and mm. you know but again it's that sort of thing of the really hard thing of trying to sort of look at the achievement of going the achievement of getting that thing out the door yeah. and it's okay in other games you know it's, it's, it's sort of very difficult like when Destiny came out I mean Destiny's a really really good game but it wasn't the Destiny that was promised it took like nearly 12 months it took the Taken King mm. to go it's good now it's great yeah. and in you know another 12-18 months No Man's Sky might be great and perhaps that was a messaging thing of not kind of going look this is effectively I mean Minecraft's been in beta since it was made yeah and I think that was advice or a mandate that they couldn't ignore that was that hired expectations but I still don't think people's responses are in any way acceptable I think it's disgusting and I don't know this is where I feel really old I think when did we live in a society where we feel that we can just fling shit at people because we're mm. personally disappointed. I can't yeah. imagine reading, you know, my I love Penelope Lively, for example. Can't imagine reading her latest novel and going, yeah. "Fuck you, Penelope! I know you're 82. I'm going to come, you know, and rape your ass." I mean, it's, it's that. Be- I will slit your throat because I didn't like the character of, of, of Mavis in your last book. So I've sent you some of my own shit in a Tupperware it's box. Crazy. It doesn't really work, does it? Doesn't. I like to put little sound bites at the start <laughs> <laughs> to sort of bring people in. Um, I was just thinking, <laughs> just make a time stamp. No, it um, doesn't map over, does it? it no, it, that yeah, makes you exactly. realise how crazy it is. And it's the, not normal behaviour. It, it isn't, isn't, but it has become. It has become normalised. And the amount you... of stuff I've received for being a woman in the industry. Mm. It's so brutal. And some days I wake up and I laugh. And some days I go, I don't want to be... And I have, you know, yeah. keep going, I'm going to leave. Because some days it's when exhausting. you nod at your best or I don't feel very well, actually, it really hits you. And some comments are particularly violent or particularly unpleasant. And you go, who are you? And yeah. who do you think I am? Yeah. I'm a, you know, I'm a woman, I'm a mum, I'm a sister, a daughter, all those things. I just think I'm a real, like you say, a real... Yeah person yeah yeah exactly and i don't know what the th- i'd love to talk i mean dan says i wouldn't love to talk to them but i really i think i'd be interested to go what was your thought process i don't want to talk behind to sending me this rape threat <laughs> yeah yeah do you mean it yeah would you act on it did you yeah. think about it do you know anything about me just just to know but i think there's the culpability for that also lies with mm. there are people mainly actually rather than outlets but some outlets as well which have encouraged and cultivated a culture of aggression and turning on devs and that really snarky vicious yeah i'm going to found find a game i don't really like it so i'm going to produce sort of like a let's play that's an hour of basically ripping into this that's very personally attacking of the devs and i think well you know yeah 
they have to take the responsibility for that. And what's always amazing is when people turn on them and they go, what are you turning on me for? And you think, well, because you fucking built it, you moron. <laughs> if you set that thing in motion, you can't complain if it runs over you as well. Mm-hmm. And it's like the French Revolution, isn't it? You know, all the people that put the guillotine in the square ended up having their fucking heads cut off. But it's not rocket science. History yeah. shows again and again and again. If you create a culture of aggression, it will turn on you. But I think there is still an issue with, with that sort of thing. If we've had people set their followers on us. Mm. Go sit there on Twitter saying, get these developers because I don't like them. And you think, well, I think the problem is, is while that still is okay as a culture, but there'll always be that. But I think partially social media gives people a direct access to other people whilst retaining their anonymity. Mm -hmm. And that's always dangerous. And Twitter and Facebook do nothing. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. There's no protection. see it a lot. I did a talk um, at Soundtrack Cologne over the summer and talked, I was on a women in film and game music panel and I talked about all the death threats that I'd had Mm. and I looked around the audience and people were crying, people were, some people were, because they, not, again, not from the gaming community Mm. and they were so shocked and they came back to me then hugging me and going, oh my God, I had no idea. Mm. I tell someone in the games industry that I've had a rape or death threat and they just go, oh, well, they're not going to do anything about it. And it's become completely normalised within the industry. And it took me doing that talk to people outside of the industry to go, this isn't normal. Yeah. And no, it's, not it's not okay. Yeah. But so many, especially men, say to me, oh, well, they're never actually going to come and slit your throat, so why are you bothered? And somehow the onus comes back onto you to be being a bit oversensitive about yeah. it. Or it's just not a thing, you know, oh, yeah, I get thousands, it doesn't matter. I think it's like, and I think it's the thing, the thing about really it. disturbing. You... Mm. I think the one thing which you do kind of learn is that, by and large, it, your, what you've actually put out there is broadly irrelevant to what you get back from that part of the community. They are looking for an opportunity. Yes. And yeah. it rotates. And you can look around and you can go, whose turn is it this week? Mm. And it'll be some person's turn and it rotates the next person. And it's its own, it's its own game. Yeah. It's a particularly <laughs> aggressive, violent, mm. unpleasant game. But it has virtually fuck all to do with actually games that are being produced. Yes. I would put money on the fact that a significant percentage of the shit that Hello Games had nothing to do with people that had bought No Man's Sky. It was just, hmm. this is the current place to put your shit. Yeah. 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 And great, brilliant. Oh, great. Hello Games getting it. Fantastic. Right, everyone. Pile on Hello Games. And it was like it's like being at school when someone would fall over and everyone would scream bundle and like everyone yeah. just jumps on them. Yeah. And it's a bit like that. And then it'll yeah. it'll roll on to someone else. And probably a significant number of the people that were writing to Hello Games saying, You've ruined my life, you fuckers, because you didn't give me the game you promised. <laughs> I'd, put, I'd be willing to suspect that a, a fair number of them didn't own it. And we've had this. We've had people write to us going, Your game is shit, you've ruined my life, I want a refund. And you kind of go, Okay, due diligence, check it out. They don't own the thing. But they just want to give give grief to someone. And that's where it's not just about games. It's internet culture as well. And it does come down to the big providers like Facebook, like Twitter, like those social media platforms actually taking seriously their responsibility to everyone on their platforms. Mm-hmm. And freedom of speech is one thing. But whilst you are protecting someone's freedom of speech to send kind of either whether it's death threats or rape threats or whether it's racist abuse or gender-based abuse or something you also have an equivalent duty to protect the rights of the other people in the community that are receiving those things. And they have a, mm-hmm. they have a freedom. Freedom of speech must be met with protecting people that are on the receiving end of it. And that's where 
you know, Twitter have been failing. Facebook failed us, and we were getting we were getting openly, oh incredibly violent racist abuse. I mean, we were having people posting on our Facebook stream, "You're fucking niggers, and you should be hung." And Facebook, and Facebook we wrote to them, and they just and they down. didn't take it down. When you thinking that's not that's not ambiguous? No. Saying no. I will slit your throat, you Jew nigger, is not an ambiguous statement. That is hate Crazy. speech, and that is down to people like Facebook to just say that is not an acceptable thing to put yeah. on our platform. And yeah. until they do. People are going to do it, you know, and it's, it's kind of, there's not much that can be done. And it, it's not about devs taking a stand because we don't control the means of the channels of communication. And Steam wrote to us and said, oh, well, if we take it down, it just encourages them. I thought, we'll just keep taking it down then. Yeah. But they it don't want, you know, they, yeah. they don't care. That's really enough. weird. They'll do it anyway. That's just yeah, completely I mean, it's just the so wrong passive, attitude. isn't it? So it's a well, difficult one. But I mean, you kind of hope that... It's become a part of the day-to-day reality of being a game developer, I think. I think most Sadly. people I know that are developers deal with it. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and then but the, the real tragedy about it is what makes me kind of most upset and cross about it is it means that what it does is it creates a distance between you and your fans. Yeah. Because you start having to put up agree. protective boundaries. <clears throat> yeah. And again, a lot of the developers that have have deigned to have a public opinion about something and therefore become a target, actually the net impact of that is that they stop having as direct a contact with their fans mm. because they just create systems that protect them from the, the grief that comes through. And that's, that's, that's really sad because you want to have that direct dialogue with people. Yeah. Um, but that means you are also open and it's a question of you finding that balance of going, how much is that direct contact with fans worth if, actually it also means getting sort of hosed down in acid every three minutes well that that was that's perfectly indicated in a um, comment of people saying um, is always oh, Sean Murray the new Peter Molyneux and what they meant by that was that is this the new person we can hand yeah. out yes absolutely no you know that's all they mean by that is yeah. this the new target like yeah. you're saying should we pile on this guy now yeah, yeah. and I think <laughs> it's you, that, see, that, you know, it? see it with, with hello that you know they've just they just all there they've gone to ground mm-hmm. and yep. it's really sad because they had a really good relationship yep. but actually now but god I don't blame them no. I'd do exactly the same thing if it was us I'd just go right okay turn off the Twitter account farm it all out to a PR company I want nothing to do with it anymore definitely um, and it's sad because actually right now is the point where a really strong dialogue with their fans is exactly what they need and I'm sure they're looking at in terms of how do we mm. know how do we you know, make this game everything that we wanted it to be and our fans wanted it to be and you want to do that in collaboration with your community base but how do you do that if the community base actually is is not again, when I say the community base that a a vocal proportion of the community base is controlling the discussion to the extent where you can't have that dialogue with them then the only choice is to just go some of which haven't haven't played the game yeah. (laughs) yeah Now you've sort of since last year taken a half step away, would we say? Yes, it's interesting. How is that? How, how is how are things now? Because I took a full step back. Yeah. Partially due to what you know the issues that we've been talking about, sexism yeah. within the industry, yeah. uh, abuse from within the you know gaming fraternity, mm. um, ill health, um, and. An abusive 
relationship with our publisher. It was mm-hmm. a bit of a perfect storm, really. Mm. And so I took this huge step back. And the games we're developing now are the first games that I haven't had direct day-to-day development. Right, okay. Um, a relationship with. And that's been really, really tough for me, actually. Mm. It's very strange you know for the first three games being there every step of the way for every element and actually now i'm just going to basically be writing the music for the new games right so it's quite a challenge i i'm still part of the chinese room so i still have a weekly meeting and a monthly meeting um sort of for high level finance strategy artistic Hmm direction and every day someone will come in and say can you just have a look at this or can I ask you a question about this yeah. so it is half out hmm. and I think I'm going to move out of the offices here at the Chinese room because it it's really tough actually mm. to be that foot in foot out it's quite painful actually yeah yeah and it feels like I need a clean break almost from the studio because my personality dictates that I'm not very good at having that half foot in. Yeah. And I love writing music. I think that's what I discovered with Rapture mm. was that passion again for what I'm really good at. And actually, running the company was always Dan's dream. And it was never my dream, but I always helped mm. and got sucked mm. into doing it and really enjoyed it. But actually, it has taken me away from my own yeah. passion and my own dream, which is to write as much music as I can. I was going to ask, is, is music your yeah, main it's thing? Yeah, absolutely To my choose between the course. two is definitely... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's become quite clear throughout our hour together that <laughs> games are not my yeah. passion. Yeah, yeah. And what... Dan has provided me with and what we've made together is a space that I feel inspired by and passionate about mm-hmm. the games that we make yeah. but I've had a lot of offers recently for big games but I don't want to do them and I'll always take on projects mm. that I feel passionate about it doesn't have to be a game it doesn't have to be theatre I'll never be a film composer mm. or a game composer it's always going to be what I always call desperately unstrategic and <laughs> career suicide in many ways, but following my heart with projects. Definitely. So I'll always want to write music for the Chinese room because Dan will continue to create yeah. stunningly realised worlds. But it is it has been a big period of transition and I think it's been weird for you not having that person. Am I I don't know if I'm speaking for you here. Yeah. No, it's I think it was a real real team and it's been very Kind of trying to find refine that balance of where we're still, but I think we're still very much a kind of a creative team. I mean, I think it was really interesting part way through Rapture when you were talking to I can't remember who you're talking to. Is it James or Rich? One I don't of know our what artists. You're sort of <laughs> you roll on it, and, oh, and yeah. they said, you know, that the, what you bring to it as you know is alongside a lot of other things is real quality control, a real sort of definite. I'll have a thousand ideas. And Jess will have like one, and we'll go with Jess's. <laughs> and I generate a lot of the momentum, and Jess creates a lot of the focus. I think in terms of how we sort of work creatively together. Well, I would say that if I made a game, it would never get finished, and if Dan made one, it would be shit. <laughs> <laughs> <And> <laughs> between us, 
between the mad yeah. visionary and the anal retentive, we've kind of had a good partnership, I think. Yeah. But I, I don't think I've been your editor in a lot of ways, which yeah. is very unglamorous and doesn't get as much attention. No, but I think it's like the thing, like uh, the difference, the thing between sort of cinematographers and directors. It's like if you work in the work outside, the, if you're outside the film industry, you go, oh, directors. If you're in the film industry, you're like editors, cinematographers. And I think that's the thing which I love most about working in games is that it's an industry that's about the editing and the cinematography and. I've never bought into the auteur model. I've never been interested in the cult of personality mm. or that thing of superstar kind of game directors. I think it's bullshit. I think games are made by specialists, teams of specialists working closely together. And if there are going to be superstars in the games industry, they should be project managers and producers because they're really the people that deliver and hold things together. But I think in terms of us... I think what we're trying to do is create that space around where we can still work together creatively, but we've now got a much stronger production team who can then pick up that sort of day-to-day stuff like finance, HR, scheduling, scoping, yeah. Yeah. all of those kind of things, and being able to let some of that stuff go. Mm. But that's hard, you know, so it's a really... It's hard to let go. It's hard, hard to let go to of do. something you've really lovingly built. Yeah. It is a bit of a painful... Yeah. That'll be your, yeah, your next step, taking that last foot out of the yeah door I think a geographical step out I didn't realise yeah. I would need it but otherwise I've got half an ear on everything and yeah. I go well, I don't really agree with that and I just pop my head around it's really infuriating of them course as well, you want so it. I'm not in on that meeting <laughs> but I'm like can I just interject they're like where'd she come from yeah. <laughs> and that's really hmm. tough as well it's not fair on the team so I think yeah not being within earshot is quite important for me and You'll be fine. How has, yeah, it, how has it felt for you so far, Dan, with just not being in around as much? I'm going to miss her. Like, you know, we kind of, we work really, really, really closely together and I think there's, I think she brings um, an energy, not just in terms of what she contributes, um, like, in terms of she's incredibly astute in terms of business. Like, she's the sort of Jesse's curse. She's an artist who happens to be a very, very, very good entrepreneur. <laughs> and so those kind of decisions are kind of like, find that default of going I, I have a tendency to make because I'm a creative director I think I you get very used to in that role making a lot of decisions on the fly coming up with an awful lot of ideas throwing a lot of stuff at mud at the wall to see what sticks and moving very 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 quickly and responsibly that's not actually necessarily the best mindset for making smart business decisions so I kind of trying to stop and come back and get Jess's take on things really important to me. So that I find difficult in terms of those boundaries of not going, I just want to ask you, I just want to ask you, I just want to ask yeah. you. Um, I think what's most important for me though is one, I want, like it's where the difference between being a business partner and being a husband and the husband trumps the business partner at this point where I want her to be able to make the projects that she wants to make and to be able to have that sort of creative freedom but I also want to protect if I'm going to spend time with Jess talking about the Chinese room I want it to be focused around the games we're making not around oh we've got this minor HR niggle that needs to be sorted mm. out or yeah. do you think we should buy a, a, an AMD or an NVIDIA graphics card for this PC that's gone down that's a, that's a, a bad way of us spending the time yeah. that we have yeah. so yeah but I mean it's I think also I think Rapture was such a such a labour of love it was such an intensely passionate project for us it's okay that not every game you make has to be as all consuming as that and that's something which I think you kind of learn when you've been in the industry for a little while that you go some projects it doesn't mean to say they won't be good or they won't be great or you don't have aspirations mm. but they're not quite as soul strippingly from the heart mm. and it's okay God, that's such a depressing thing for you to say no I don't I think it's fine I think it's sometimes you you 
like there are different ways of creating things. There are things which are less emotionally intense but are still just as good. And like things like Total Dark that we're making at the moment, it's really loving. I think it's going to be a really, really, really good game. It's not going to be as emotionally intense a game as Rapture because it just isn't. It's not a very, very serious mm. game about loss and about faith and about this sort of thing. It's a much, it's a quite strange, not any way as kind of like serious. It's certainly not heavy or dark in that way at all. So it'll be a different experience. It won't have the same kind of emotional requirements that Rapture did. And that's okay. I don't think we'll ever make as personal a game as Rapture. I think it had a lot about illness, about the grief we were going through at the time with personal loss. I think it was very heavy, actually. But very cathartic as well. But we invested everything we had, I think, into that game. Yeah. Preempting on my questions. <laughs> no, no, it's good. No, it's good. So I was going to say, I was both going to talk about that, about how much you know that kind of personal um, involvement, uh, investment you had with Rapture, and how much of it was reflecting what's going on with yourselves. And I was also going to ask, um, is it always important to put that much of yourself into a game? Which you also answered with. <laughs> with the new I think. I think it can be. I think it depends. I mean, I've got a really. I kind of have a bit of a contradictory thing on that. So I think it is important that you are that you give what's needed to it, that there is a kind of a, a closeness and things like that. But I also think you are fundamentally constructing something for other people and you can't invest <laughs> to the exclusion of the audience because I find personally coming from theatre there's a little bit of that mm. but I also think there is a bit of that going on within the indie game scene at the moment where people are making games for themselves and sometimes they yeah. are a little bit self-indulgent at the expense of you are asking people <laughs> to pay for a product that communicates to them and I think that's also really important there has to be a degree of professional this has to work and this has to be we have to have a little edge of coldness in there just to make sure that it's functional in a yeah. communicative object I think me and Jess are going well it's interesting because I, well I don't know if you're specifically thinking of something like beginner's guide when you say something like that yeah you see I think it's really interesting because I think <laughs> I do Ray really like is, it he's a very clever communicator and I don't think he is I think it is not quite as self-absorbed as it appears yeah. to be as a game. I think he's a very... He's a, I mean, he's a really, really smart cookie. He knows what he's doing, Davey. I, got, I think I got more out of it because as, as someone who creates things, then you could, you could tap in on that level and, and, and identify. But I would say I, I think um, Rapture has a much more... a much broader kind of... Um, Appeal and and ability to tap into what other people are thinking and feeling. Than, than but Rapture that. couldn't see. Rapture is was very deliberately constructed that to try and make sure that every single character's perspective on what was going on was equal. That it doesn't privilege any one particular point of view. So as when you come to it as a player, you find the person whose voice resonates with you. Mm. But no one has it. This is not about Rapture. Is not. What Kate thinks is going on 
is not more important or more true or more real than what Frank thinks is going on, and that's not more important or more real than what Howard thinks is going on, that everybody's voice is equivalent mm. and everybody's voice deserves to be heard. And and so I think in a weird kind of way, writing Rapture, there had to be an emotional, like emotional remove because that was really, really important. So there are characters that I identify with much more strongly and probably have a much closer voice to my own voice and my own opinions about stuff. Mm. But there are also characters in there who have quite different views of the world and faith and all that sort of stuff than I do. And I wanted to make sure that their voices were equivalent. I also yeah. think we're older. And mm. without wanting to sound deeply patronising, you tend to make solipsistic, very navel-gazing work in your 20s. Yeah. We did, because you don't have the same yeah. breadth yeah. of experience and you're probably not a parent. Mm -hmm. And there are many other factors. Yeah. And as you grow up, the world is less black and white and much less to do with yourself. What we were watching last night, and I thought it was an absolutely fantastic line. Oh, it was in Humans. Yeah. All oh, right. And um, they're playing a game of Go. And he said, oh, the wonderful thing about Go is that it gives you perspective on the outside world and it kind of makes you feel insignificant. And she says, nothing bad's ever happened to you, has it? And he says, no, what do you mean? He said, well, if something really bad's happened to you, you already know that you're a very insignificant grain of sand in the world. And huh. I love that line. Huh. And as you get older and bad things do happen and people do get ill or you lose people, you realise actually your, your part in it, especially as a parent, is you're not the centre of your own world anymore. Yep. And I think it fundamentally changes who you are as a person. And my mum said to me when Oscar was born, she said, this is the death of ego. <laughs> or it should be. And it was. Mm. I was absolutely not the most important person in my life anymore. Yeah. And that's Oscar's birth has been the biggest influence on me as a creator. And yeah. it completely changed my work. Again, it sounds patronising, but I forgive those people if they make work that's really self-regarding or very... Yeah. Because you were exploring who you are at that age, and that's exactly what we were doing yeah. with the work that we made at that age. It kind of, you feel you are the centre of your universe, mm. and you're exploring that. Yeah. Um, and I think it's no hmm. great mistake that often the people who we consider to be giants in their field are older, because they've seen the world, they've experienced it, you've met more people, you've travelled more, it's all mm. broader. Yeah. And I think gaming still has the cult of youth attached to it, and it's one of the only mediums that celebrates the young rather than artistic maturity. Mm.